Where exactly in France is Mont d'Orfranc? Yeah, so it's in the Jura region. In, like I said, in, in the region they call the Doub. You know, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. D O U. No, it sounds right to me. Yeah, okay. That's right. You, you never ask an Australian to pronounce something in French properly. Yeah. Well, at least yeah. not me, anyway. Enchanté. Bonjour, I'm Andrew Pryor, and this is Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that brings you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food. Whether they're here in France, like me, or around the world, each week we dive into a specific topic, a French dish, an ingredient, or French cuisine cooking technique, and we learn about it from a special guest who's an expert on that topic. My guests are all about French food. Either they cook it, they produce it, talk, write, or photograph it. But above all, they love it. So come, join me each week as my motto in life is, whatever you do, do it fabulously. And that's why this podcast is not just about delicious French food, but French food that's fabulously delicious. Bon app, everybody. Patrick Ambrosia, thanks for joining me on Fabulously Delicious today. Thank you for having me, Andrew. I'm looking forward to it. I am too. You grew up in Long Island and you have an Italian-American heritage. So I wanted to ask, who cooked in the house when you were growing up? Yeah, so uh, actually my mom did, uh, my mother and grandmother uh, lived with me growing up. Uh, they both cooked, but actually my mom cooked more. Um, and uh, But my grandmother was an excellent cook as well, you know, and they were very kind of natural cooks. And Did they cook together or were they competitive with each other? <laughs> well, <laughs> I think my grandmother just kind of acquiesced most of the time because it's easier to have someone cook. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and she was older, you know, so my mom was more the kind of the person who did all that thing. Um, yeah, but no, they didn't. Sometimes, maybe for holidays, you know what I mean? You know, so you have this big kind of Italian-American thing going on for like Easter and Christmas and stuff like that. So then they would all cook and even my dad would maybe pitch in a little bit like for stuff like that. But for the most part, my mom cooked. My grandmother had her couple of specialities that she liked to cook, you know, and, and those, were, those were great, you know. What was your favorite thing that she used to cook to you? She actually used to make a great chicken cacciatore and it was really like so, it was actually so simple. It was her own little version of it, you know, and uh, I mean, there it was just chicken, tomato, olive oil, and garlic. I mean, most people are, you know, cacciatore implies the hunter, which implies mushrooms and all sorts of other things, but she didn't. I don't know. And she just said that's the way her mother did it too. And, uh, and that was it. And it was just very simple. Uh, but it was just the way she cooked the onions, you know, too much, but not too brown and, and, uh, some tomato paste and tomato product with it and just cooked in there. Uh, it, it was just perfect. You know, I still try and do it. Sometimes I get close, but I can't, I can't exactly do it, you know. How do you think that food and cooking has changed most since then? You know, that's a very good question. This is something that I do talk about myself and I kind of, uh, you know, there's a great, so cooking today is great in one way, right? Because I think there's so much more available to the average person if they want to learn to cook. It's, I don't, you know, you can go on Instagram and there's at any given day, there's, you know, in, in two minutes, you can find 50 different cooking tutorials and things like this and, and everything like that. So I guess in one way, it's great, you know, uh, but in another way, I think 
my own personal opinion is that cooking and cuisine might have become in a lot of ways just a little overworked, a little over fussy, a little self-conscious. And maybe in America, we kind of define ourselves as a foodie culture or something like that, right? But so many people are so farther away from cooking themselves, you know, and and having a relationship themselves with food other than what they go to eat in a restaurant, you know, and, and then likewise, and I'm not here to disparage the restaurant industry, but there's so many restaurants now and there's so much of it. And I don't, I think at one point, you know, a restaurant person and a restaurant family and tradition was like a very select thing. And they were really, uh, you know, it, it really kind of meant something. I think there's just a million people doing it now. And, and sometimes I think like the restaurants in my childhood were, were better. They were more kind of simple and direct. And, uh, you know, that's my own viewpoint. I'm not sure, you know, but I mean, it's it maybe just a little contrived uh, nowadays for my liking. But I'm, I'm a very simple person with simple tastes. So. Do you think your mum and grandma would have cooked? If, if she was cooking now in this day and age, would she be the same cook? Well, yeah, I, th- I, think, I think she would be. Um, that's an interesting question as well. Um, I know my mom actually evolved a great deal as a cook. You know, she cooked one way and she eats like in a very vegetarian kind of vegan kind of way now. And she's actually, yeah, she's actually a very good instinctive natural cook. You know what I mean? She has a great way with food and, uh, uh, she's great. And, um, she has evolved a great deal. My grandmother, that's, that's an, maybe a little less so, but I think that, um, I think that she would have maybe, um, you know, looked maybe more towards lighter cuisine as well, you know, because I think she, I think she was looking, you know, I, I think when you're really like natural like that, I think you accept everything that's around you and you can accept the value in anything, you know, I, I think there's an old kind of stuck in their ways kind of cook that maybe just cooks 12 things and, and, uh, you know, just refuses, just refuses everything new because it's different and new. And there's that type of person that will do that with any kind of information. Right. But I don't think that they belong to that. You know what I mean? They would, they have their traditions and traditions would have, been, but I think they would have adapted. Uh, and my mom does adapt more to modern, uh, mostly in a health sense. You studied food and cooking at, uh, the French Colony Institute in New York city. What was that experience like? I did. Well, it was a, it was actually a great experience for me, you know, but, uh, I have to say that I went into it, um, a little more experienced in all those techniques than I think a lot of people. I was kind of passionate about like classic French cuisine for a couple of years beforehand. I used to make actually my own veal stock at home, which is something now that I've, now that I graduated, I never do that. <laughs> but at the, but at the time when it was like this great thing to unfold and discover, like I was doing that and I was making beurre blancs and I don't know, all these kinds of things and, you know, doing a lot of that food. So I kind of went in with a pretty well-defined schema of what it was. But that's not to say that I, I that it wasn't eye-opening because it it was uh, an incredibly eye-opening experience and just, and for looking at it through the filter of a professional cook, you know, changes the whole thing. And I remember the first, I remember the day we made like potafu, you know, like I, it was this great revelation to me because in, in my growing up and in my regular eating, I'd never eat anything that was like essentially uh, d- d- boiled beef. You know what I mean? I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's an oversimplification, of course, but uh, you know, 
I, I never anything like that. And then I'm looking at this finished dish and I'm, I'm like, my God, this is, this is brilliant, you know, and it's regal in it's, in it's simplicity, you know, and, uh, it, it, you know, that, and there was other things too, but I remember that moment really struck me as like, wow, you know, this is the, and this is the, and, and it also was like, yeah, this is kind of the beauty of French cuisine. People think it's so fussy and, and this and that and a million things. And, but then you have things like that, you know what I mean? Things like that. You have things like ratatouille, which are, you know, simple and basic, you know, cuisine grammaire. You know. How is the Institute different from other cooking schools? I think the they focus, you know, obviously the French cuisine, you know, everything there that I think it might have changed now and it's no longer actually even called the French Culinary Institute. I think it's because, I think it's now the International Culinary Center. And it has broadened. I mean, there is the French component to it. But at the time that I went, um, a lot of the instructors were French. Uh, and all the English spoke, all the English and American, I'm sorry, uh, instructors all spoke French and had been to France, you know, so it was very Franco-centric in that way. And, and you really just learned all the techniques through uh, classic French dishes. It was all like, you know, old cuisine kind of like that, you know. I think that other cooking schools may they do do all the techniques, you know, whether it be braising or grilling and, you know, or sauteing, you know, it's, it's kind of all the same, no matter what the end result is, it's really about the technique. But I think other schools maybe, you know, go other, other places with it. I've seen like the, I've seen like the CIA's, um, uh, you know, a book and, uh, it's not quite as, you know, French centric. And I was very, I was very interested in going to a school that was, you know, centered on French cuisine. Cause I was actually very influenced by Jacques Pepin and Madeleine Cayman, who was somebody that people don't talk about enough in my opinion, but who was a great, uh, cook and a great ambassador of, of French cuisine here in the United States. You know what I mean? Why was she one of your food heroes? Yeah, well, you know, because I think her more, she kind of brought this, um, which is something that's important to me. I think she brought like the the story of people uh, into it more. You know, she would, I mean, her technique was flawless and she, but I don't feel like it was ever, uh, with her, I don't ever feel like it was technique for technique's sake, you know. She was very schooled in all those things, and she could, in her technique with things and making stocks and, and cooking techniques and, and all, were just as good as, you know, any Michelin chef, you know. Um, but she always, maybe the fact that she was a woman, I don't know, you know, she approached it, and, and you would see her show, and she would talk about, like, she was doing so she knew all that stuff, but she make cook like a very simple dish, very home style dish, like uh, like a little pancake, you know, from Savoie on her cooking show that her that she learned from her aunt. You know what I mean? And this was something I think she always felt the need to make the connection to the people and where the food came from. You know, I think she kind of stressed that and that always kind of resonated with me and her food just always looks so natural and, and good, you know, but very, very professional, you know, rustic, but sophisticated at the same time. In the US, you can, you can end up with a rather large student loan, can't you, by being a chef in or, or training in some of these schools? Well, you can. Yeah. I mean, now with the, uh, when I graduated years ago, I don't know, 20, 30 plus years ago, actually. And, um, 
at that time it wasn't too too bad you know what i mean uh, but now the the price tags are like 60 70,000 dollars i think or something crazy so uh, they are some of them are degree programs too you will have like a college degree mine was not was just a vocational kind of certificate but uh yeah they don't subsidize it here and they don't there is kind of like an apprenticeship right you'll go work a restaurant and you'll have a really lousy job it, it pays 12 dollars an hour but yeah you won't get any you'll still have the loan if you took the loan and you'll only be making you know six whatever six hundred dollars a week so you're listening to fabulously delicious the podcast that's all about french food and the wonderful and fabulous people that make it if you'd like to support the making of fabulously delicious then there are many ways you can do this but one of those ways is through patreon the link of which is in the show notes for this episode For as little as the price of a cup of coffee a month, you can receive exclusive content just for you. When you were younger, you had an interesting job before you were a chef. What was that? Yeah, so I was a musician uh, for the first, for first half, in my first lifetime, as I like to say, you know. What did you do? What did you play? So I played the electric guitar primarily, and I worked in, um, you know, bands playing like rock music. When I was very young, you know, rock music, I was I started playing the guitar when I was 13, and like every 13-year-old guitar player, you know, of my generation, you know, we all wanted to be Eric Clapton or Jimi Hendrix, you know what I mean? So that's what everybody wanted to be. That's what I wanted to be. And I played that kind of music, and I still love all of that. You know, it's great. Uh, and then I became very interested in, in American blues music at the time that I was uh, about 17, 18 years old. Fabulous. You know? Yeah, and so, you know, I really focused on, like, Chicago blues and, and uh, people like B.B. King and Money Waters and Walter and people like that. And we, uh, we had a band, actually, that did quite well. As a 19-year-old kid, you know, frightened out of my mind, we opened up for uh, uh, the James Cotton Blues Band. What was the band's name that you were in? Can we Google you and find you on YouTube somewhere? <laughs> you could, you could, yeah. So I was, uh, so you know, the band I was in is based in my hometown of uh, two actually uh, that I worked with a lot. One was called the Little Wilson Band, which was Wilson as in Little Wilson as in Wilson Pickett, because we were like a R and B kind of review like that. They still p- perform a lot. I play with them occasionally, but I don't really do it anymore. And I was in another band uh, that still does play in the New York area too, called the Funk Philharmonic. They were like a kind of a tower of power tribute band if maybe we'll call it that before people were even doing kind of quote-unquote tribute bands you know tower power earth wind fire and cut some other kind of peripheral you know instrumental funk like that too but both both really great bands in very different ways and uh and I was proud to do both of them. And then I worked, for, I did some gigs uh, through a friend of mine who got me some work uh, playing with some oldies acts like the Platters and the Drifters and stuff like that. All those oldies groups, stuff like that. Yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of trying, yeah, I'm kind of trying to return to that, you know, at 66 years old. I don't know how crazy that is, but I've never been done the sensible thing. So why should I start now? No, it's never too late. We're going to talk about the Mondorchi soon. Uh, it's today's topic. But before we do that, I wanted to uh, talk a bit about cheese. Now, you actually own a cheese shop now, don't you? I do, yeah. So I. What's it called and where is it? I'm, my, town, my shop is called The Town Cheesemonger. I'm in the, in the lovely hamlet of Huntington, New York. That's on Long Island, about an hour east of Manhattan. 
Okay. And so why did you get into cheese? Yeah. So, so, you know, uh, we were a chef, I was a chef as we've talked about. And, uh, my wife, who's not even my wife at the time, we, um, we moved to California because she had a great opportunity. Uh, she studied wine and is a certified sommelier and such. Uh, and, uh, we had a great opportunity to, uh, to for for her to work, but for the both of us to live uh, at a working vineyard in Sonoma County, California. Yeah, Russian Hill Estate Winery, and uh, so she was their hospitality manager and um, uh, and and uh, kind of social director and what what have you. And um, and I went out there as kind of a package deal to cook like for events for them, but they only did that. Uh, they only did that once or twice a month at tops, you know. So uh, I was kind of looking for something else to do. I was already very interested in cheese from having worked in the New York area as a chef and seeing all the cheese in, in all the upscale shops there, you know. Um, and so I was very interested. And I kind of had a good working knowledge of cheese. So, so I was cooking, like I said, once or twice a month from them, and I wanted something else to do. So uh, I went to Napa Valley, and uh, the the very famous uh, American retailer who's now closed, Dean and Deluca. I don't know if you're familiar with that brand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, had a store there in, in uh, Saint Helena on uh, on Highway 29 in Napa, and I took a job there. You know, and. Uh, and the first, from the first day I was there, I was just like, I was captivated by it. And I mean, it was a huge cheese program. We must have had like 350, 400 cheeses out there. You know what I mean? And like, nobody really does that anymore. A few people, but really. And, uh, and to me, it was this whole incredible world, you know, of, of all these things. And I, I was even intimidated by it. I think that the first three days, I think I didn't sell, you know, I was kind of just kind of slowly finding my way through it and they were kind of teaching me how to wrap cheese better and cut it and all this kind of thing and when I did when I did step up to the people I think I just I think I only sold Cantal for the first three days because I knew where it was in the case and and, and I knew people would like it and, I, and and so it was my little thing like but but I actually really took to it really quickly um and in a in about a six eight month period I was kind of doing the ordering and I was and I was uh uh, learning how to set up the case. Actually, the guy that t- t- did the case there, unfortunately, he passed. He was a great, uh, uh, he was a great cheese guy, and I kind of watched him, and then I learned how to kind of set the display and all kind of stuff. And and my department manager at the time, a gentleman by the name of Steve Schaefer, uh, who uh, I will always be thankful for because he encouraged me to grow in this business. You know, let me take over some of the ordering and, and kind of training of the, the staff, and so it really allowed me to grow very quickly that combined with the fact that it, there was the veritable world of cheese in front of me it allowed me to grow very quickly you know so when i came back to new york and i did other things um you know i was i'd had all this incredible experience and i came back to a program where it was like a hundred cheeses and it was like it was wow this is like this is like having a day off working here you know because you know but but still you know you respect it and you do it well and it doesn't the, the amount of cheeses doesn't matter it's just that after running a program like that i felt like really prepared to run anything do you get a lot of french cheese in the u.s how much do you actually sell there yeah, I do. You know, I kind of, um, my big passion, you know, although I do try and promote, uh, local American farmstead cheese, which is something that I do believe, that I do believe strongly in. I, I'd say the other, the other piece of it for me is French cheese. Yeah. You can, you can get a lot of French cheese here. 
um, you know, as you know, um, and I think it's the same in your homeland that, you know, there's the ban on the, on the raw milk cheese, you know, so on for, and, and even when I started in cheese, it was not that way, you know, we're getting replichon, you could get, you know, other, uh, Morbier, you know, and, uh, uh, but now it's no longer like that. And, uh, you know, so that part saddens me, you know, especially because I read a lot about French cheese and I, and I see uh, all this great cheese on, on, on all these sites, you know, and, and I know that they're not, they're never going to be available to me, you know, so it kind of saddens me, but this is what it is. I can either cry about it or I can try and represent it as, as best as I can. And that's what I try and do. And within that, you know, you still have some of the great French cheeses of the world that, that are available here in their original version, Comte and things like that, you know what I mean? Also Arati. Do Americans eat their cheese differently to the French? Yeah, I think they, I think they do. You know, I think um, the in America, you know, except for in the most kind of you know, uh, you know, traditional French, you know, outlets or restaurants, you know, uh, cheese is really almost always consumed before the meal here. Yes, it's the same in Australia. Yeah, and I think it's the same in a lot of places, but the, that's that's the one difference. The cheese plate is kind of not. I you know I used to do that at home when I first started. You know because I was on this mission. Oh well, we have to do it the way Americans do it. Is and then I realized nobody people just were like, well, I don't want to eat cheese now. You know, <laughs> where's the where's the dessert? Uh, so that's one big difference, you know. And I think uh, uh, Americans uh, are less fond of the racier stuff too. Americans I think, tend to like sharper, nuttier cheeses. You know? What would be one of the most popular cheeses that you sell? Uh, yeah, so uh, I do sell an American cheddar called Prairie Breeze is a very is a very popular uh, cheese. You know, it's a very kind of, it's a, it's not very much, not like a one note cheddar. It's very fruity and kind of aged Gouda kind of like at the same time within the classic cheddar flavor as well. People gravitate towards that. If it's a, if it's crunchy, you know, like this, this new kind of sensation in the past 10 years, I've seen everybody wants like that little crystallized milk solids that you get like in an aged Gouda or something like that. You know, they like that. They like, a little bit of sweetness. Americans like sweet. So then that's a popular thing too. However, in terms of French cheese, I have to say uh, the, the Pyrenees sheep cheeses here sell very well for me. And I'm always very happy to see people, uh, you know, I've built a, a good little following for the Oso Arati, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and it makes me really happy to see people embrace that cheese. You know what I mean? Raymond Blanc is a food hero of yours. Why is that? What do you love most about him and his food? Yeah, he's he's so uh, he's so passionate about his food, you know. Like he's got a, you've probably seen it. He's got a, a BBC show, you know, where and he focuses show a focus on one ingredient, you know. And uh, I saw a show with him doing tomatoes, you know, and and uh, he he did all these beautiful things with it. And some things very sophisticated, and things very simple. He made this beautiful tomato salad of. Of his of his mother's, you know, salad. My mom Blanc, he called it, and it was it was just so simple with some vinaigrette and herbs, and he did like stuffed tomatoes, like your grandmother would make. And then on the flip side, he did this like kind of strained tomato jus, you know. He just kind of purees them and puts them in a bag, and he won't even press it because he doesn't want 
like the extracted flavors of it. He just wants this like essence of the tomato to come in and it's barely red, you know? And I thought to myself, wow, this is a guy who is really getting inside of every ingredient and looking for the beauty in, in that ingredient, you know, the pure flavor or the subtle flavor, the, the robust flavor. You know, I thought it was fantastic, you know, and, and it really kind of made me think, wow, this is somebody who's really in, in touch with his food. You can see he's really in, in touch with everything he's cooking. You're listening to Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Do you have a passion for one particular French dish, ingredient or cooking technique? Add to that, do you have a story to tell? Well, I'd love to hear it. And I'm sure many of our fabulously delicious audience would too. So get in touch, slide into my DMs. Hmm, I've always wanted to say that. On Instagram at Andrew Pryor Fabulously, as I'd love to hear from you and hopefully have you on Fabulously Delicious. On to today's subject, the cheese called the Mont d'Or. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. What does that translate to in English? Yeah, so the the Mount uh, the Gold Gold Mount of Gold, right? Is is that correct? Or yeah, it sounds like it. That's, yeah. That sounds about right to me. The Golden Mountain or the yeah, Mount yeah. Gold. So why is it called this? Do we know? So yeah, so it you know it's one of the it's one of the great like mountain cheeses of the Jura. You know the the uh, it's typically I don't think made in as high an elevation. Uh, but uh, yeah, so it's um, it is very much a mountain cheese, and it's got um, you know it has a very interesting history as well. Um, uh, you know, the Mont d'Or uh, comes from, and, and a lot of cheeses, especially in mountain areas where they make large mountain cheeses, are uh, they, they were a, a way to use up maybe extra milk, or in the case of Comté, you know, even to use uh, a winter milk. And Mount d'Or is made, you know, really kind of past the peak summer months, uh, can only be produced between, um, what is it, August, uh, August 15th and May 15th, you know what I mean? So yeah, so now you start to get, and then a lot of it is made in, in winter. And so the idea is to, uh, is to make, is that the, the farmer who's, you know, using milk to make the, the big cheeses for sale will make a, a small cheese more like for the family. You know, the Tom the Reblochon, the Tom de Savoie kind of started that way, uh, you know, in the Savoie. And uh, the Morbier was even a way to use up the, uh, when you didn't have enough milk to, you know, produce Comté. It's a cheese of two nations, is that correct? It's not just French. Yeah, it is. So in that area too, it is not just French. Yeah, the Swiss do their, the the Swiss is the one that really, you know, from what I understand, and maybe you can educate me here, uh, someone once told me that in France they do call it Vacheron. Ah, uh, the Scott. Swiss version, the Swiss version, or the French yeah. version. Yeah, the, the someone Swiss said version. they call the French version that too, but I don't, I don't know if that's correct. But yeah, but the Swiss version is the one that uh, that they call the the Vacheron Montdor, you know. And then in France, the other name for it is the Vacheron du Autobe of the, of the High Dobe region. And what's the difference between the French version and the Swiss version? The production is pretty much the same, and and where they're produced is really not far from one another. You know, um, the the biggest difference now is that I believe that the Swiss only they only produce like one made from thermized milk, which and, and it is available here in the U.S. Where where the France in France they only do the raw milk version. So is thermized milk the same as pasteurized? Is that the same thing? It's not. 
Yeah, thermized is kind of like halfway between raw and pasteurized. It's heat treated enough, um, you know, to – the belief is that it's heat treated enough to kill what's in there that could be dangerous. I mean, this is a whole other topic because, you know, there's issues with pasteurized cheese, so I'm not really sure about all that. And I think it's your government and my government are kind of a little funny about that, but I have my own views about that, but that's another thing. Meaning, meaning the Australian government, not not the French government. I prefer, yeah, 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 I prefer yeah. to say my government's the French, French government now. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Australian, US, yes, they've got yes. the 60-day rule, but there's plenty of people that eat in Montour in France that are just fine, so we don't... In the 90s, there was a crisis in relation to the Swiss version, wasn't there? What was that about? There was, yeah. So it was actually, it was, there was actually a case of listeria, you know, that uh, a fatal case of it, you know what I mean? And, and originally the French, it was the French version that was blamed for it, but it turned out that it was uh, a Swiss version. And I think from that moment on, then the Swiss, you know, was when they began uh, changing their production method. It didn't have any effect then on the French version? They didn't? It didn't, no. Except, save for the, uh, uh, well, as far as what the industry did, I don't know about that, you know, so much like maybe did, did producers think maybe differently or, you know, preemptively so that it wouldn't happen with them as well. That I don't know the answer to exactly. Um, but, uh, in terms of their production, no, they remained raw milk. So that was the last that, uh, you know, that we were going to see of that here, you know, but I do bring in the Swiss version and it's, it's quite good, you know what I mean? If you sit on it and let it really kind of ripen up, you know, it is still very enjoyable, you know. So, Where exactly in France is Mont d'Or from? Yeah, so it's in the Jura region. And like I said, in, in the region they call the Doub, you know, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, D-O-U-B-S. No, it sounds right to me. Yeah, okay. That's right. You, you never ask an Australian to pronounce something in French properly. Yeah. <laughs> well, at least not me anyway. Um, and so how is it uh, How is it made then, the Montour? And I've read somewhere, what connection does trees have to do with the fact that the way that the, tree, the cheese is made? Yeah, so I'll, I'll explain the uh, production method in a kind of a simple overview to not get involved in a lot of things. But the, the cheese itself is made from two, from two milkings. Uh, the milk is placed into molds and the cultures that they use, uh, are specifically chosen because it allows the milk to acidify, uh, slowly. You know what I mean? For, for, for purposes of texture and flavor, you know, and then, um, uh, there's, uh, after a couple of hours, it's it's pressed for a brief period. Uh, after about an hour, it's unmolded and salted in brine. Uh, and in that process, then I'm sorry, I left out. They also put the uh, the spruce bark around it. So spruce is. Yeah, that's a very popular thing. Um, the spruce, you know, in the forest there in both France and and Switzerland. So. The spruce, the the spruce there is to kind of hold the cheese together because it's really a very kind of, you know, soft. Uh, it's a very soft kind of floppy cheese in its very early stages, and so the spruce bark around it will hold the cheese together as it's ripening on the boards there. Does that add flavor in any way to the cheese? It, it does, yeah. So you get, you know, you have the text, uh, you have that kind of text, textbook resinous uh, flavor along with the other kind of earthy flavors, and the spruce bark very much does uh, contribute a flavor to it, you know, a kind of a little kind of resiny, piney flavor. Yeah, it's actually very subtle, but it's beautiful. Yeah, it's an important part of it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's known as a, a washed rind cheese. Is that right? Yeah, correct. 
So what's meant by that term, washed rind? Yeah, so so cheeses uh, are washed to, uh, you know, uh, to develop uh, what you would to call a, a stinky flavor. You know what I mean? So that can be done in a number of ways. It could be done just with a salt brine. Um, it can it can be done with uh, morji, which is like bits of other cheese and cheese rind that's mixed with salt and water to rush to brush on the outside. So the 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 high moisture and and then the um, and the cultures that they use bring out those um, bring out those molds. And so when you have that you know, sitting on top of the cheese and you're repeatedly washing it and brushing it with this, then it's going to encourage that kind of flavor in the cheese, that stronger flavor. In the making of the cheese, is it aged? Like, you know, like you can go to and get a Comte and it'll be 36 months or 24 months or something like that. Is the same thing with the Montour or is it eaten pretty much straight away? Yeah, no, Montour is only going to be aged, uh, you know, so about 15 days or so, and then it's put in its box. And then at that point, it'll be aged maybe another 20 days to 60 days at the most. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's definitely not, you do want to, you don't want to like open it up right away because it's not going to have achieved its full like kind of flavor bouquet, but, but it's not something you want to sit on and no, there's no, uh, there's no eight month versions of it. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, you just, you know, you get it, you eat it, and that's that's it. You know? It comes in those little boxes, sort of the same as the camembert do, the, that sort of um, bamboo-y type box. Why is that? Yeah, so, I mean, I think it's, uh, again, it's just to kind of hold the cheese together, um, you know, at, at time of sale. You know, it's just really more for marketing it more successfully, I think. But uh, the, the box is interesting because it also can serve as kind of a cooking vessel for the cheese if you want to do that thing with it. Yeah, I was going to say that. So can you cook with it? Yeah, so you can. Yeah, so there's a very, I think most people are probably just, um, you know, the two most popular ways I think to serve it are just straight, you know, you you don't slice it, you know, you just basically cut through the the top rind and scoop it out, you know, so the, the most, the two popular ways to serve it are just kind of scooped out onto bread, you know, um, or served at, cooked like with, uh, with boiled potatoes and the morteau sausage of the same reason, smoke, the smoked sausage of the Jura as well. Yeah. So for that baking, do you like have a recipe for that that you can share with us or do, is it very simple? Do you just, is it just the cheese? Yeah, it's funny. I wrote a piece on it and it's funny. It's almost like, it's kind of not even a recipe. It's kind of like, you just tell you just say, okay, here's how we do it. You know what I mean? You get, you get yourself some foil and you put it, you know, uh, up and around the box just to kind of, you know, stop anything from happening there. You know, you set your oven to 350, you know, Fahrenheit. Um, and then you, and, and you can do, you know, you can go simple or more elaborate. You can really just some poke holes from it, put some, if you have, if you can get the Jura wine, you know, something like, you know, then you would want to put it, you just sprinkle a little over the top, kind of let it mix in. Some people will just kind of put holes in it, uh, put little stud it with little garlic slices maybe some rosemary or a thyme or uh maybe savory you know you wouldn't use like a, a fine herb you wouldn't use tarragon parsley you want like a a big herb uh and a little white wine over the top put it in the oven for 10-15 minutes and then you know let all those kind of flavors mingle and then put it out over the sausage and the, and the potato yeah but it's great to do that it's a fun it's a fun winter time 
that's the fun thing about about Moldor. You know, every year we have to wait for it to arrive. You know what I mean? It's like a little. It's very ceremonial that way. You know. Well, that actually leads me to that question. I was going to ask: Is it seasonal? Because it does seem to be here in France. There's a time of the year to be eating it. So, is it when is that? Yeah, it's, I think it's generally considered that it's actually best in winter, in winter month. You know what I mean? And um, yeah, and you can only offer it for sale. I think from. Uh, uh, September, September 10th to, uh, September 15th to May 15th, something like that. You know, you can't offer it even for sale after that point. You're listening to Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Do you have a passion for one particular French dish, ingredient, or cooking technique? Add to that, do you have a story to tell? Well, I'd love to hear it. And I'm sure many of our Fabulously Delicious audience would too. So get in touch, slide into my DMs. Hmm, I've always wanted to say that. On Instagram at Andrew Pryor Fabulously, as I'd love to hear from you and hopefully have you on Fabulously Delicious. Now, there's, I've seen here two sort of versions of the Montdor. So one is that is that round, um, uh, smallish round version that you could bake um, and that you've talked about before and just uh, dipping. But then there's also a bit of a larger version that can be cut up and sliced and it doesn't seem to be as um, runny, a bit more, it's a bit more firm. What's the difference between the two? Yeah, so uh, many, many cheeses come in like what they, you know, in, in the mini or whatever you want to call it and what the French will sometimes refer to it as the coupe. You know, Ipoise comes that way. There's like a one and a half pound version. I forget the, all the weights, but there's a larger version as opposed to the one that comes in the box. Uh, Livarot comes in the coupe as well. You know, you can buy a two pound wheel instead of just the 500G model. And and the Mondor uh, also comes like in the coupe. I think it's about six and a half pounds or something like that. Yeah. And you're right. You can buy. I, I did see I did see that cheese once here in America. Unfortunately, we won't see that here because to the best of my knowledge, the Swiss don't do the coupe. They just do the little box one. But yeah, you're lucky in France. You can go into shops and uh, and, and and they always have it the same way. And it was the, the time that I saw it stuck in my mind. It was the same way. They have like a little piece of uh, because the cheese is so yielding. Um, uh, you know that they, they use like a little um, either like a marble or a piece of wood thing to butt yep. up against the cut yes, so it does yes. it all ooze out you know yes, what I mean? that's right yeah and I was so struck by that I must have saw that like 40 years ago and I was so struck by that you know and I had heard about the cheese and uh, and I didn't get a slice of it then I was almost like intimidated or something by it. what should you drink with a Montreal? yeah so I think the white wines of the Jura or the Savoie or um, are really great choices for that. You know, that kind of fruity, uh, I like a fruity kind of white wine. You know, you could even do like maybe an Alsatian white, you know, would be good too. You know, even something off dry, I think would even be good too, like Vouvray. I think it's not typically done maybe, but I think it's good. But those those kind of very fruity, uh, you know, white wines of, of the of the Jura and the Savoir, I think are really perfect with that. Although I have had Pinot Noir with it too. I, I think something, I think something earthy, you know, uh, with it uh, is good as well. But I, I'm, I'm seeing white. You know, it's a, it's a funny thing, too, because when we lived in California, so I went to California um, not drinking that much California wine. So now here we are on a on a working vineyard, you know, producing uh, Pinot Noir and uh, and 
Chardonnay, some Syrah, things like that, you know, and, um, and all of us, and then when you're out there and you're eating the foods there, then all of a sudden, you know, the wines of the region, those wines really made sense. And, and I didn't drink French wine out there hardly at all. French or Italian wine, we didn't drink at all. We bought, we'd buy a bottle as almost like a novelty, you know, and the people out there, they don't, they're like, you know, it's like France might as well not even exist. They're very like, Californians are very, very much like that. They drink what's there, you know, and it makes sense. And when and the food, you could start to see how the food is tailored towards that. Then when we moved back to New York, I don't, I, I may have had like, you know, Russian River, Pinot Noir 20 times, but it's been close to 20 years. I mean, or maybe more than, maybe a little more than that, but a hundred times, but you know, whereas, and then now I drink more French wine again. You know what I mean? And so it's kind of uh, Long Island wine. I do drink sometime, but I, I don't, you know, but uh, yeah. Um, Patrick, David Leibowitz is quoted as saying that the Mont d'Or is called the Holy Grail of French cheese. Um, what do you think he means by this? Why would it be considered that? I, I think maybe because it's so, because it is so, uh, you know, it's not there all the time. You can't take it for granted. It is like the little bit of this cause célèbre. You know, when you when you do see it, you know what I mean. And it is there is certainly something kind of regal about it there in its little box. You know, uh, looking just so. You know, and then and the and the taste is so. Uh, it's stinky, but it's not right. I mean, it's 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 bold. It's the flavor is big, but it's very balanced and. And really, kind of sophisticated flavor, you know. And um, I can only guess that that's what he means by it. There is a certain kind of regality to it, to my mind. You know what I mean? The area that it comes from is there other cheeses from that area that we would know? Yeah, there are. And and something I kind of love about that area, and and I think it speaks to kind of the uh, the that cheese really first and foremost is about terroir, is that yeah. So in the Jura. You have, um, well, there's many cheeses, but the two most famous, you know, um, along with the Montdor, uh, the, the Gruyere, uh, the Comté, and the uh, Emmental so form kind of this triumvirate of cheeses that exist both on the French side and the Swiss side. So uh, the Comté uh, is really essentially the same cheese as the Gruyere. As a matter of fact, the cheese itself and the commission itself that ran it was called the uh, the committee of Gruyere de Comté. It was called Gruyere de Comté. You know what I mean? Um, so the production method is very much the same. Uh, Comté is a little more delicate, maybe, and a little more floral than Gruyere, which kind of hits you over the head a little bit more. Uh, and the Emmentaler on the French side is a little fruitier. But basically, the production is the same, you know, and it speaks – what I love about that is it speaks more to the region and, the, and that specific terroir of the Alps than it does uh, than it does the dividing line of the nations, you know what I mean? And that's kind of the beauty of it, that they both kind of share that, yeah. Uh, Patrick, before you go, the question I ask everybody that's been on Fabulously Delicious, what to you is the most fabulous thing about France? Uh, other than the pure aesthetic beauty of it, you know what I mean? And, and the villages and all those obvious things that everybody loves. And uh, I just really love, I, I love that kind of adherence, you know, to the regionality and, and the idea of of the foods and the way they're 
used in every region and you know that and, and that and, and that people just kind of join around that you know the celebrations around the food the uh, the, 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 the customs and all the things I mean when you look at uh, when you look at the Basque country and you see all the Espelette peppers hanging from the houses and and then you go to Normandy and you see all the little farm houses and just that kind of regionality it's like France is like, and, and I mean, Italy is like that too, but, and, I, and I'm Italian, right? So you might think I would just go there first, but for whatever reason, the, the French aesthetic of it is more fascinating to me. I don't know what it is. They seem really just so, so focused on just like that region, like it, it screams that region. Patrick, uh, thank you for joining me on Fabulously Delicious and talking all things Montour. Andrew, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure to meet you and to speak with you. Oh, merci beaucoup. I hope we can do it again sometime. I'm sure we will. And I better get off. The dog is now wanting his dinner. <laughs> it's a beautiful dog, by the way. Yeah, merci beaucoup. He knows it. <laughs> <laughs> All the French walk around going, oh, il est trop beau, il est trop beau. I'm going, are you talking to me? <laughs> no, they're not. They're talking to the dog. Uh, Patrick, thanks for joining me on Fabulously Delicious. Andrew, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Merci beaucoup. Merci. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.